0: grows across the world. Are uh, the, their interests collide with China's? They go to war with China and basically force China to sign humiliating treaties, um, kind of relinquishing certain our uh, territories.
1: This is the hardcore humanities podcast plus our researcher recommendations. In each episode, I'll be chatting to a researcher from one of the UK's best universities. We'll discuss their work in any topic within the humanities. And at the end of each episode, our researcher will give us some recommendations for further reading. Links to which can be found on the Hardcore Humanities website and social media. I'm Jamie, and you are welcome to the podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by William Clintworth. Now, William is a historian from Cambridge University. He did his undergrad at the University of Exeter in history and international relations. His work included an exploration into the British 1968 withdrawal from the area, known at the time as East of Suez. Uh, He is currently doing his master's in politics and international studies at Cambridge University. And here he focuses on China. So, William, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Jamie. It's fantastic to be here.
1: So let's talk about your work that you did on Britain's dis- decision to withdraw from east of Suez uh, in 1968. Before we get into the specifics of that, can you just tell us where we are referring to exactly when we talk about the east of Suez?
0: Sure. Um, so uh, the British Empire was extremely powerful at the beginning of the 20th century. But over the course of the century, Britain like has to give up most of its uh, colonies as the time goes on. Um, So East of Suez is really the region that Britain's left with by the late 1950s and 1960s. And it's roughly the area um, in and around the Indian Ocean. So it's places like Yemen, uh, Malaysia, Singapore and the Maldives. And it's these bits that uh, Britain's really focused with uh, as we get into the 1960s.
1: Right. And am I correct in saying that uh, politicians in Whitehall of the day did not exactly want to withdraw from this area i'm reading here from from your work it says a motion in the house of commons backing withdrawal was rejected overwhelmingly by 225 votes to 54 in june 1966 the day marking the withdrawal announcement the 16th of january 1968 was billed as black tuesday by the ministry of defense such was their sorrow about the move so there seems like there was a lot of reluctance why was there such reluctance, and then how did it happen in the end?
0: yeah, great question uh, I, I guess kind of emotionally many parliamentarians were really attached to uh, the idea of Imperial Britain, and for them um, the end of the Empire East west really represented uh, the end of Britain as a predominant uh, global player um so I, I, in that sense, even though many of them thought it might uh, you know, be be justified. Uh, there was still a, a, a lot of um, uh, sadness about the move. But uh, as I really argued uh, in this piece, I, I think economic matters really ran first and foremost throughout the periods. I, I, I think if Britain's economy had been doing well enough um, and if, um, you know, keeping these territories had proven advantageous enough to Britain, they might have uh, retained the... Uh, these territories for longer and even to the present day. But uh, Britain was really financially struggling to the extent that uh, they really had to give up uh, uh, these territories uh, by this time.
1: And one thing that struck me whilst reading this essay of yours that I'd never thought about before was how the Vietnam War uh, impacted this decision or played into it. Now I guess I'm referring to the public and the electorate here um because the vietnam war correct me if i'm wrong but in your work you argue that it made the british electorate question um, america on on two two things really firstly that it's a decent ally in the sense that um its foreign policy decisions to get involved in vietnam a foreign country not only politically but to send in the military as well was proving to be completely counterproductive and really hurt the americans And also the idea, the whole concept that you can go get involved in a foreign territory, politically and militarily, was being shown to be, well, in a really bad light, it was shown to be a big disaster for the Americans. And this made the British electorate question whether their uh, involvement in terms of foreign policy, their involvement overseas was, was valid.
0: No, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And it's really interesting if you, uh, it's probably on YouTube that, uh, that that there's a lot of footage about uh, British protests in London about Vietnam, um, uh, protests outside um, uh, Grosvenor Square or Grosvenor Place, whichever one was the American embassy at the time. Uh, there's so much footage of, uh, you know, British uh, people of many ages protesting against uh, the embassy because they uh, disagree with America's decision uh, to intervene in Vietnam and also to really express uh, their desire for Britain to not get involved. Um, So I I guess uh, people did really feel strongly about this. But what's also quite interesting is that even though uh, Harold Wilson, prime minister uh, in the late 60s, doesn't get involved in Vietnam in terms of sending troops over, uh, he does provide a lot of support to the US as well. Um, I think financial in terms of logistics and that kind of thing, so even though britain doesn 't intervene in Vietnam, it almost does everything else apart from that. So we do have to remember that you know Britain and the u s were very much allied during this period, even if they hadn't intervened in vietnam
1: right and how did the the wider Cold War impact britain's foreign policy and its decision to withdraw from the territories east of Suez in nineteen 19- 68 um the way i see the cold war i mean maybe this is a simplified view but i do think it's accurate to a certain extent you have america leading the way for the capitalist liberal democracies and then the soviet union defending the communist socialist uh, socialist principles and then in the middle of this massive ideological conflict there's little old britain trying to forge its new path and figure out where it stands on the global stage. And especially when we're talking about the 60s, the Cold War really, really came to its zenith. At the start of the 60s, um, in 61, the Berlin Wall goes up, in 62, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So when it comes to Britain's decision to withdraw from the territories east of Suez in 1968, what can we read into that with regards to Britain's uh, place within the, the Cold War conflict, the ideological conflict that was going on?
0: I think you've really hit the nail on the head there in terms of pointing out that Britain really had to forge a new path. I think one factor which may have perhaps like to say sweetened the deal for Britain was that the US, in so many ways, had so many similar foreign policy aims to Britain that in withdrawing, they knew that there was another global player who they were allied to who could actually helped to further many of uh, the aims that they themselves held dear. So I guess we see this in Vietnam. We see this uh, in terms of uh, US military bases uh, across the Indian Ocean uh, in places like Pakistan. Uh, so in that sense, uh, even though Britain wasn't doing exactly the same as the US in terms of international uh, conduct, um, they had pretty much the same... Aims in terms of, you know, helping to further capitalism and, you know, prevent much spread of communism. So I I, I guess there was some feeling that even if uh, Britain was choosing to withdraw from this region, uh, many of the values that Britain had would be continued as well.
1: Right. And while all of this is going on, um, there is China, which is what you are focusing on uh, during your your current studies for your masters now during the 20th century can you just give us a bit of a brief history into what was happening in in china
0: yeah absolutely i i mean I, I personally would actually go back to uh kind of the 1840s and the opium war uh so china had been regional hegemon so so they had kind of they they're in charge of the local area but um as uh, Britain's influence grows across the world uh, the, their interests collide with China's they go to war with China and basically force China to, to sign humiliating treaties um, kind of relinquishing certain uh, territories and uh, I guess uh, control of the region to Britain and, and this begins what uh, people in China refer to as the century of humiliation uh, it, it, in roughly the 100 years from the early 1840s to 1949 uh, uh, the Chinese perspective is that, uh, uh, it's constantly, uh, bullied by, uh, its neighbors, be it, or, uh, the entities around it. So be that Britain, uh, and increasingly as time goes on, uh, that becomes Japan. Um, Japan, uh, invades China, uh, in the 1930s and, I mean, basically conquers most of the country. And it's only really with, um, the victory of uh, Mao Zedong uh, against the the nationalists in the late 1940s uh, and kind of uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, entrenchment of power that China sees itself as kind of getting back the power that it once had. So I, I think looking at China in the 20th century as a whole and, and actually into the present, there's this real narrative of China trying to recapture the power that they they consider themselves. To have once had.
1: Right. And you are looking at specifically the last 25 years. Um, and you mentioned before we started recording that you might switch your focus slightly from maritime strategy. Why did you decide to look at maritime strategy originally and why have you changed your mind?
0: Yeah, good question. Uh, so I guess in terms of a, an MPhil thesis, uh, it's only 20,000 words, which in one way is a lot, but in other ways, isn't much, considering how much research one does and how much one can write about. Um, when I was actually chatting with my uh, supervisor, uh, he said that uh, you could do a really good PhD thesis if you looked at uh, uh, how, it, how things are done in, in the maritime sense, on land, cyber, polar, that kind of thing. Um, so, I, I mean, th- th- there's so much one can cover. Uh, one of the good things about doing this in a maritime sense is that it gives you some focus so you know exactly what you're covering and you can look at one aspect of Chinese policy in one area. Uh, but I think researching the topic more, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll shift it more to an overview of Chinese strategy rather than just looking at the maritime sense.
1: Right. And so with with regards to the last 25 years of Chinese strategy, what have they been up to and what are the decision makers aiming for?
0: Yeah, great question. So, uh, so Mao Zedong dies in 1976. Uh, and after a few years, Deng, Deng Xiaoping uh, becomes uh, Chinese leader. And uh, famously, China, China's economy becomes a lot more free market uh, in the years following. Uh, and its GDP really rockets up. Uh, so this is where the, the kind of the, the, discourse of the rise of China, quote unquote, emerges. Um, and I guess China, China's military also builds during this time as well. Uh, but China's leadership is actually quite hesitant. Um, so they're always very careful in terms of official discourse to try and portray their conduct as, uh, you know, not belligerent. Uh, and they have the, uh, official phrases that they use to, um, like describe the way that they um rise up so one of them is peaceful development i think it, it was originally um peaceful rights actually uh, they decide to um change the language because they really want to emphasize um that you know um they're they're trying to do things uh, you know they don't want to uh, infringe upon their neighbors too much and there are other phrases as well so uh watch and analyze developments calmly, uh, secure our own positions, and very equally uh, never become the leader. Uh, So these policies uh, are really followed from kind of the early 90s onwards. Uh, But recently, China has, I guess, been a bit more confrontational in terms of its policies. So that's partly why I'm quite interested in the last 25 years, because it marks the period between the stated... Uh, peaceful aims and as of as of late uh, I guess de facto the more uh interventionist route that they're taking today
1: right and the title or the provisional title of your work is an inevitable Chinese military expansionism, and I'm interested in your use of the words inevitable um to what extent is it inevitable that China will want to engage in military expansionism?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, I guess it kind of depends which school of international relations you fall into. So uh, a lot of realists have said that uh, uh, China aims to maximise structural opportunities. So in in, uh, in a regional sense, let's look at the South China Sea. Um, uh, China has a pretty strong military and navy. Um, but at the same time, uh, there are a bunch of different other countries the, around the region. So like the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia and so on. And obviously they don't want China to uh, take uh, territory or uh, sea area, which uh, they could use uh, in the future. So from this perspective, China is limited because it doesn't really want to engage in an all out war. Um, but I, in my opinion, uh, China wants to utilise um statecraft so statecraft is basically uh the means by which if one has a structural limitation one can use it to try and uh extend the ability to which it can act within this this limitation uh so this could be in an economic sense it could be in a diplomatic sense and it's basically yeah making use of different tools to maximize the opportunity you have to make a difference within the limits of circumstances you might be in um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, there are different, uh, spheres, as, as I've said, uh, and I, I think, um, like the way that China's acted economically, uh, for instance, is one way in which it's really trying to go beyond the boundaries that it finds itself in.
1: So what has the reaction been from other countries that this shift in in Chinese policy? You said in the last 25 years or so, China has 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 upped it and drifted away from some of the the policy aims that it had previous, like not getting engaged and uh, not being a leader, all that kind of stuff. Now, with the shift, what has the reaction from other countries been?
0: Well, it's a great question. And I think it really depends on where you're looking and when you're looking. So, I, I If you look at countries like the UK and Australia, in the last two or three years, uh, these countries have definitely got a lot more wary about China's uh, conducts, uh, partly because of uh, human rights abuses in uh, places like Xinjiang, um, but uh, I, I guess also in terms of uh, the conduct of companies like Huawei uh, and the links that some Western governments have made between them and the Chinese government. Um, on paper, countries like uh, Japan uh, and uh, Vietnam should be worried by China's conduct. But it's quite interesting how uh, how actually um, what's the word? I, I guess uh, they're, they're okay with a of Chinese conduct in, in many ways. Um, I, I think China's focus on using diplomatic language to um to kind of uh cloak or to describe the way that it acts is has been quite effective at allaying and alleviating some of the fears that uh, its neighbours have in terms of its its aims. And I, I the thing is, uh like China China doesn't want a war, I don't think, at least not at this stage. And uh China's neighbours certainly don't want a war. Um so uh yeah, China will try and increase uh it's heft in the region and obviously it wants to grow its economy but it doesn't want to do so in such a way that it annoys its neighbors to the extent that war breaks out
1: right you mentioned uh human rights rights abuses there can you just get specific about what you're referring to
0: uh i guess stuff like uh sterilization of Uyghur women uh in Xinjiang. uh I think uh, camps have been set up uh, by the Chinese government. Uh, uh, I guess I don't know whether it's for, explicitly for re-education or for other purposes, but uh the, I mean these are just some of the examples of what the government's been doing in China.
1: Okay, and looking forward to the future. You mentioned that you don't necessarily think that China wants a conflict, at least not a military conflict. Um, but where where do you see this this going? Uh, with regards to not only China, but also other nations like the US? Yeah,
0: great question. Uh, I, I think I, I do subscribe to the, the idea that if the US withdraws its conduct overseas, at least in Asia-Pacific, China will be very happy to fill the void in which, which it creates. So I, I think if, if the US government keeps up its uh, like military spending... And it's, uh, it's kind of regular activity in the region. This will, uh, sway China against really, uh, flexing its muscles. But, uh, it, if the US does withdraw, I think it's very likely that China will, will be very happy to, to make more of it. I I think if things came to a, a head in the South China Sea, then things could happen. I, I think China wouldn't want to be the one to fire first as such. But uh, I I think maybe in 10 years or 20 years or so, if uh, a Filipino uh, gunboat was to open fire on a Chinese ship, I could see that escalating into some sort of military conflicts in some form.
1: Okay, and you mentioned there that the US are kind of acting like the guardians almost of that um, region. What exactly are the US up to that makes it that way?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, good question. I, I, I guess uh, so. Most people say that the US is global hegemon these days within uh, a unipolar system. So, for people who haven't come across IR terminology that much, the US is basically the primary superpower in the world, and it has been so uh, since uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but I, I think that's uh, in recent years especially the last decade this unipolar system has given way to either a bipolar one or a multipolar one so if it's a bipolar system it'll be the US and China who are the two big dogs in the world and if it's a multipolar system it'll be the US China and maybe other countries who are pretty evenly matched in terms of the the uh impact that they have in the world um so thing is if you're a global hegemon you don't want to give this up i mean no matter how uh, like moral the language he uses, but I, I, and the course of human history has shown that the big dogs are usually loath to give up the power that they've had. So I think uh, the US, I, I, you know, its conduct abroad is uh, to you know look after countries and uh, to, I guess uh, to to try and um, address injustice where they see it happening, but it's also to entrench and maintain the power that they've had for the last few decades.
1: Okay, great. And let's move on to your book recommendations. So what are your recommendations for this subject?
0: Great. So my first recommendation is a book by a guy called David Baldwin called Economic Statecraft. Uh, And I've been using it a lot for my thesis, in my note-taking, and it's kind of his ideas that I really want to build up on. So uh, he defines statecraft as the art of conducting state affairs. And he goes specifically into examples of economic statecraft, but also different types. So he talks about propaganda as one way in which countries can escape the boundaries they find themselves in. Uh, diplomacy is another one. And one section of the book is really interesting in that it goes into kind of uh, like carrot and stick language. So you've got negative sanctions that uh, countries can give against one another like embargoes and boycotts and that kind of thing. And then positive sanctions are uh, like uh, tariff reduction, uh, providing aid or subsidies to exports or imports. And we can see this in the world today if we look at the trade war between uh, the US and China. Um, this book was written in 1985 but uh, what it says is still very applicable today.
1: Yes, I was just going to point out that throughout our conversation both of us had sort of specified whether we were talking about a military conflict or some other kind of conflict and this idea that conflicts in the future will most likely revolve around economics um you hear about that a lot nowadays right
0: yeah absolutely you know it it, like as much as we think of conflict in a kind of traditional military sense there are so many different mediums in which it manifests itself
1: yeah, and your second recommendation?
0: Uh, yeah, so this is one of my favourite books. It's called uh, Why the West Rules for Now. And it's by a guy called Ian Morris. So Morris is actually a classicist. Um, but uh, this book kind of lo- looks at uh, the world in terms of two cores. So the Western core and um, like the Eastern core. So for Morris, the Western core uh, is kind of Mesopotamia, uh Greece, um Italy, um Western Europe and then the US. And then the Eastern Core has pretty much always been what is now China. And Morris does this really interesting thing where he creates this social development index. Uh so this considers uh the amount of energy a civilization can capture, uh whether it can print, or how how quickly it can communicate, how able it is to make war, and that kind of thing. And he um basically makes graphs comparing the West and the East throughout the last few thousand years. And it's really interesting that uh, kind of the quote unquote Western core and Eastern core are, uh, they, they kind of, they swap places in terms of who's ahead on this index. So I think reading this book really got me interested in firstly, comparing different parts of the world and then making judgments about how yeah, how powerful different parts of the world are going to be in the future based on what's happened in the past.
1: Amazing. Well, William, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and I wish you all the best with the rest of your studies. Thank
0: you, Jamie. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have enjoyed it, please do us a massive favour and tell all of your friends about the Hardcore Humanities podcast. You could also give us a good rating or review and follow us on social media. And don't forget to check out our researcher recommendations. Until next time, ciao for now.